Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Alia Review of Books. This is episode 12 of the Alia Review podcast. Joining us today is Alexander Mika Baretza, professor of history at Louisiana State University in Shreveport. He is the author of The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. British historian Andrew Roberts has declared his book to be, quote, a true masterpiece. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tristan, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, look forward to having uh, a wonderful conversation with you. You write in the preface, quote, the shelves of any decent library grown under the weight of works on the Napoleonic Wars. You write this in the preface. Your That's right. Book clocks in at just under 1,000 pages. my my question for you is what did you set out to do in this book that is different or unique is it the global aspect it is a a global history or perhaps it's your own eurasian perspective your own unique roots is there something to share on the origin story of the book absolutely and thanks for bringing that up because i think you scared the (laughs) half of your readers right (laughs) right there Don't worry, it's not that bad. (laughs) Thousand pages. Yeah, you're absolutely right in that Napoleonic Wars, or Napoleon himself is probably one of the most studied periods and individuals in history. Uh, I think uh, back in 90s, they did a study on uh, a brief kind of overview of how much was written about Napoleon, and they gave up at around half a million works. But when I started my career. I started as an outsider. So I am a lawyer by training. I went through law school, got my degree, practiced law, and then I decided, well, history is what I want to do. Went back to graduate school, did my history training, got my PhD in history, and then asked myself, now what? And that's where I think when I came as an outsider, both in terms of the profession, but also because I am from a small country of Georgia in Eastern Europe, Uh, We all are trying to find our own niche. And mine, when I was looking for mine, it was, well, why is my people's, my country's experiences missing in a broader narrative? Because Georgia was part of Napoleonic Wars. But if you leave the traditional framework of it, Georgia was part and parcel of Russian, French, Iranian, and British geopolitical struggles in the East. And I couldn't find that in the traditional Napoleonic narratives which concentrate on Europe, which concentrate specifically on the British and French experiences. Even Russian experiences are underplayed in this historiography. And so I set out myself to fill in this gap. So my first kind of major oeuvre was the three-volume study of Pauline's invasion of Russia from the Russian point of view, essentially, to show, hey, we know what the French did, and we know relatively well what Napoleon was doing. Here's the other side of it. And this book is the, I think, culmination of that process in many respects, because I came to conclusion that Napoleonic Wars, the way it was written about for a long time, was too narrow. That ultimately, as I say in the book, Napoleon, and there are a lot of people who like him, there are a lot of people who do reenactments and dress-ups and all that, and certainly Napoleon sells. But ultimately, he's the loser when it comes to Europe. Ultimately, his empire is wiped out. Ultimately, France is in a worse position in 1815 than it was in 17, let's say, 99 when Napoleon came to power. To me, 
the impact of Napoleonic Wars is far more pronounced, more consequential, and more interesting outside Europe. And that's why I wrote this book. We'll get to the global perspective in just a moment. But first, I thought I would just set the scene for our readers with a 30-second summary of the European-focused Napoleonic narrative here. That is basically the, the French monarchy falls to revolution. This is Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake, the guillotine. Revolutionary France starts a bunch of wars. Napoleon unites and expands the French nation state. Other powers unite against him. He invades Russia. He loses. He's exiled to the island of Elba. He comes back. He loses again at Waterloo to the Duke of Wellington. Congress of Vienna, 1815, establishes a kind of balance of power for the next hundred years or so. Is that sort of the standard European view? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, I don't think you took all 30 seconds, though. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, no, I think you summed up the gist of it there. Of course, the story is, you know this, the story, the way you summed it up is Eurocentric, right? Very it's Eurocentric. centers uh, on, on France. It centers on Britain. You especially, let me highlight the fact that you said Napoleon is defeated at Waterloo by Wellington, even though we know that the British troops represented a minority of the <laughs> Allied force there. So it's a shout out to my German colleagues, right? And that's, I think, one of the problems of the modern historiography and why I want you to broaden it a bit. And it is part of a larger narrative that history profession is undergoing, especially in the last two decades or so. And that is the move away from country-specific and really broadening our confines. So over the last 15 years, especially, we see the rise of this global history narrative that highlights interconnectedness of various parts of the world, that highlights how an event in one area is reverberating on the other side of the planet. And Napoleonic Wars, to me, is the excellent foil for that. Just, if nothing else, how can we exclude the profound changes in the Latin America from the Napoleonic narrative? The struggle of the Spanish colonies for independence begins in 1808 for a very crucial reason, and that is Napoleon's occupation of Spain, Napoleon's usurpation of the Spanish throne, which forces the colonies, starting from New Mexico down right to the tip of Argentina, to make a choice. Stay loyal to the old regime, embrace the new Napoleonic regime, or do something else. And that's the story of the defining almost two decades of the Spanish colonial history from 1808 to the late 1820s, the struggle of these competing narratives, competing loyalties. And I was quite surprised when I started you know, my career not to find that voice. Of course, it, it doesn't mean that this topic is not studied. There is a vibrant, very rich historiography of colonial studies. But we historians are working in a very compartmentalized kind of world. There is a I think French, great French historian who once said that, you know, historians are either they like parachutists who are looking at the world from top or they're like truffle pigs, just digging for their own truffle. And quite many of us are like those truffle seekers working in our field. And I wanted to turn myself into a parachutist who looks down and sees, oh, the events here are connected here, that when we talk about Napoleonic Wars, it's not enough to focus on 
a Franco-British rivalry, we need to bring the United States into this narrative. If nothing else, Louisiana Purchase takes place in the context of Napoleonic power struggles. Right? It's to understand it, we need to look at Napoleonic Wars. And it has a direct impact on Napoleonic Wars. By 1912, the United States is engaged in a war against Britain, which is what Napoleon was very happy to see. And in your book, you go much further afield than just the Western Hemisphere. If we can sort of take a whirlwind tour of the world, exploring a few different regions, let's start with Russia and Scandinavia. What was so impactful there? Uh, yeah, um, and that, that's the thing, again, uh, so Russia and Scandinavia still will fall under the Eurocentrism part, but even there, you see that even Eurocentrism has its own centrisms, <laughs> and that's usually focusing on France and Central Europe. So we know the struggle between Russia and France intensified in 1804, led to the War of Third Coalition 1805, the War of the Fourth Coalition 1806-1807 which Russia lost. But Napoleon then made a, a very pragmatic decision. Unlike Austrians or the Prussians, which he did humiliate and impose rather draconian conditions on, he treated Russians quite leniently and effectively offered them to partition Europe in the Treaty of Tilsit in the summer of 1807. And indeed, when they met, the two emperors, Napoleon and Alexander of Russia, shook hands, spent some time having fun in that small town, and then they drew a line, a proverbial line across the map of Europe with Russia claiming everything in the east and French claiming everything west of that line. And if we look at that line, that line gave Russia claims to Finland, which historically has been under Swedish sphere of influence. It was part of Swedish empire. And so right after Tilsit in early 1808, in February, Russian troops cross the border, invade Finland, and initiate this a war with Sweden, which will last through 1808 and most of 1809. Ultimately, Sweden will be defeated by Russian forces. And in a, a treaty that they will sign in the fall of 1809, Finland will become part of the Russian imperial domain and will stay so until the start of the 20th century. So that's an important element of the story because in order to deal with the Russian threat, Swedes, for example, sought closer relationship with England. So between 1808 and 1812, there is this quasi-war going on between Britain and Russia in the Baltic. It's not an all-out war you know, with big armies, but it is largely naval conflict between the British squadron that is in the Baltic and the Russian Navy that is there. It certainly exacerbates Russian relationships in other areas, you know, Anglo-Russian relationships. It also meant that when the Napoleonic Wars was over, Sweden demanded compensation, that they have just lost a significant chunk of their territory. And ultimately they were able to prevail in these demands and they were given Norway, which will be in a personal union with Sweden for years to come for much of the 19th century. So that's also an important element in the story that is missing in the traditional narrative. Even more important, if you ask me, is what happens in the Middle East. And there, if, if you ask me what were the areas that really felt the impact of the Napoleonic Wars, I will rank the Latin America and the Middle East as among the most crucial ones outside Europe. Because in the Middle East, we see 
what I call in my book, the first example of liberal imperialism. The French come to Egypt in 1798, right? Bonaparte leads them. They come on the premise of bringing liberty, freedom, revolutionary changes alongside imperialism, colonial rule. And they stay in Egypt, right, from 1798 until 1801, experimenting with this. They bring revolutionary transformations. For example, they try to end slavery. They try to reorganize this essentially feudal society of Egypt, but ultimately they are defeated by other European powers, right? British invasion of 1801, and they're forced to leave. But the French impact is stays, and the impact is that, that the old way of life can no longer sustain itself. There is a political vacuum there and needs to be filled. The fact that Napoleonic Wars have impact on the Ottoman Empire, which nominally at least controlled Egypt, meant that the Ottoman Sultan could not project his authority in Egypt as, as strongly. And so that vacuum, therefore, is filled by a maverick man, a warlord, but a remarkable guy by the name of Mehmed Ali or Muhammad Ali, who tries to rebuild Egypt by borrowing elements of the Western experiences, modernizing certain aspects of Egypt, while maintaining the traditional way of life. And we see that experiment here really having profound impact because by 1820s, Egypt will emerge as, the, as a modernizing element in the wider Middle East. And in fact, by 1830s, it will modernize itself to such a degree that it will be able to fight a war against the Ottoman Empire itself. So it's here a region is challenging the suzerain, the, the sultan, and will actually come close to defeating it. And that model of modernization, right, will serve as an example for other areas of the Middle East. If we go further east, think how important it is that India sees the growth of the British imperial power during this period. Now, it didn't start in the Napoleonic era, right? We see British East India Company arriving in India way before that. We see them securing their control of Bengal in Seven Years' War. But it is during this period, during those wars of the coalitions, and then what becomes Napoleonic Wars, that we see the British company, this East India Company, using the French threat. That's what I use this term, French threat, through the book, as a justification for takeover of British states. And here, the key figure for me is a man that is not as prominent although he should be in our discussions, uh, uh, Richard Wellesley, the governor general of British East India Company, the man that I say comes close to Napoleon in the British context. His thinking is similarly imperial. And he's very successful because in between 1798 and 1805, when he's recalled, he effectively lays the foundation for British imperial rule in India by either outright conquest your listeners are welcome to check what happened to Mysore when they challenged the company, or by indirect rule, by subsidies, by essentially giving carrots to those Indian rulers who were willing to trot the line and using the stick against those who didn't. So that by 1805, you see the foundation of what will ultimately be the British Raj. And of course, 19th century history would be completely different without Britain having the British Empire in India. So that to me is very important. 
But we can carry that story even further to the east, to places like China and Japan. And here what we see is first forceful interactions between, or as a violent interaction between European powers and the Tokugawa Japan and the Qin China. So in both cases, it's the British who are the culprits, because under the umbrella of French threat, that if we don't do it, French will do it. For example, British tried to open up China. So in 1808, for example, they went to Macau, which was nominally a leased colony by the Portuguese from Chinese. Because Napoleon invaded Portugal in 1807, Britain argued that these Portuguese colonies might fall under French control. So we will go in and take care of the colonies by <laughs> capturing them. So they showed up in Macau in 1808. This is uh, Drury's famous expedition. And they've tried to open this area to the British trade, to British commerce by force. Now, in 1808, the Chinese response was swift, efficient, and it stopped the British from achieving their goal. It is also true that the British have much larger fish to fry because they are fighting this massive war against Napoleon in Europe. Macau is a smaller issue on, on that scale. But the lessons of Macau stay with them, and they will become important in 1830s, when there will be indeed an all-out war between Britain and China, the, the infamous Opium War, and the British will indeed defeat China and open it up, just as they intended during the Napoleonic Wars. Story is similar in some respects for Japan. Same year, 1808, a British warship tries to sail into the port of Nagasaki, the only port where Europeans were allowed. It forces its way in. It really humiliates the Japanese authorities there by extracting the resources from them and then leaving. And here, to me, what is interesting is this failure of the local Japanese authorities to draw a larger lesson that inability to deal with a single British warship that sails in and out. The fact that Japanese had these coastal defenses, but they were outdated. The fact that they were able to do that should have prompted modifications, should have prompted changes, should have prompted them to prepare for a, a portent of things to come, right? Which they did not. Which meant that in 1853, when American Black Squadron showed up by Commodore Matthew Perry, Japanese coastal defenses are still dilapidated, still outdated, still incapable of dealing with an outside threat. And that opening up of Japan right, is, the, is a transformational moment in Japanese history. And I know you, we can argue in the Pacific, wider Pacific, considering what Japanese did in the decades after that. Well, I think that's an absolutely fascinating tour of the world and gives some sense of the scope and breadth of the book. It is a beautiful tapestry, if I may say, that weaves together all these different threads, many of which we have seen bits and pieces of in other places, but perhaps not altogether in one place. As we run out of time here, I've got three lightning round questions for you. First, who do you read? Who are your academic influences? Well, I mean, I'm quite voracious in, in terms of reading habits. There are, of course, challenges of being an academic and read in the sense that as, an, as a full-time academic, I conduct research and I write books. So right now I'm writing one and it consumes a lot of your time just doing research. But 
I'll tell you the, some of the most recent books I've read outside my specialty in terms of my research area. So I just finished Neil Price's History of the Vikings, which I found quite interesting, especially because he brought not the traditional kind of narrative history of the Viking expansion, but of a story that was very grounded in archaeological discoveries and material side of it. I really enjoyed reading Mark Morris's book, which is the history of Anglo-Saxons. A lot of things new and really exciting about it. The two other books I read just recently was Helmut Walser, Smith, Germany and Nation in Its Time, which is a remarkable survey of German history over the last 500 years. If you want the parachutist view of German history, that's the book to go to. And then speaking of the, the doorstoppers, I highly recommend Richard Robertson's book that I read, which is a new history of the Enlightenment called Pursuit of Happiness, which is a really uh, masterful work uh, of this one crucial intellectual movement. What's your favorite novel? Oh, that's a hard one. And that's, again, goes back to what I was saying, that I don't have much time to read the fiction. The last fiction I read was Mantel's masterpiece on Thomas Cromwell, the trilogy that she did. So I finished it, I think, early last spring. I love that. But frankly, that probably is the only fiction I've read in in a decade. That's incredible. <laughs> final question. Final question. What's next for you? you? You mentioned a book you're writing. If you want to share a brief teaser for us, that'd be great. If not, happy to let you. No, no. Yeah, no. I'm, I'm, yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm excited to, uh, to talk about it. Your listeners, speaking of fiction, your listeners might have read Tolstoy's War and Peace, uh, another doorstopper. <laughs> and one of the key characters of the War and Peace is, of course, Field Marshal Mikhail Kutuzov, the great Russian commander who led the Russian armies against Napoleon, the man who would be considered the savior of Russia in 1812. Well, the good and bad news. The bad news is that there is nothing written on him in English. The only biography of him published 50 years ago, is god-awful. And I don't use that expression lightly. But that's also good news, because that means there is a lot of things to say. So I'm finishing the new biography of him that will offer a lot of fresh insights, a lot of new information for the Western reader especially. And uh, my hope is that Oxford will release it next summer. It will be a huge book. (laughs) Not as long as War and Peace, but... (laughs) Well, I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on. And we hope you'll come back when the next book comes out. Thank you so much for having me. I have a wonderful rest of summer and keep reading. You too. Thank you. This interview was conducted on July 28, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the Alia Review of Books. Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleo.com review.com.